Good morning. I'm a little out of practice getting up and and talking here in a service like this, so um, it's not that I haven't been preaching any, it's just that uh, um, I've been giving, they're like devotions over at Shawnee Hills that are 25, 30 minutes long, and I when I knew today I was going to be speaking here with all of you, I thought, well, they won't want a devotion. They, they want 50 minutes. <laughs> so for that reason, I feel like I'm a little out of practice. So we'll, we'll see. I'll give it my best shot, though, all right? that make you feel better, James, right? Yeah, okay. Now, some, something I would like to do at the very beginning here this morning um, involves it being Veterans Day weekend, um, and it's not something that I have always, you know, attributed the appreciation and, and all to that that I should have, you know, even though my dad, you know, he, he spent time in the Army and all. It wasn't until probably my mid-20s or maybe even late 20s um, that I feel like for the first time, I didn't take a bunch of stuff like the freedom we have in this country and all for granted. I just kind of had that tendency that, well, I live in America. This is the way America is and didn't give it much of a second thought. But for whatever reason, it was at that particular point in time in my life when, when I gave it more serious thought and began to realize that um, we've got a segment of the population uh, in this country that... Uh, um, we owe a lot of honor to uh, and a lot of respect. And so I, I would like to ask if all of the men and women in here that have served in some branch of the military, uh, whether it was as a career or whether it was one stint that you spent time in, um, I, I would like to ask if you would stand at this moment. Would you do that? Yeah. We appreciate you. We appreciate your willingness to uh, um, put yourself in harm's way, you know, to be able to uh, protect what we cherish in this country. And I know sometimes we kind of get caught up complaining about how we feel like, you know, freedoms are in jeopardy and, and all of this. But the fact of the matter is we're still the freest country and, and very grateful for all of those that were willing to pay that ultimate price to help secure and to protect that freedom. So thank you, all of you that stood just a moment ago. It was about three months ago that Kurt um, mentioned to me that we were going to be doing this series of messages uh, involving questions that Jesus asked. And so he asked me if I'd like to tackle one of them and and when he said that, I immediately knew which one I wanted to do. And so I asked him if anyone had taken this particular one. He goes, well, uh, no. And I looked at the list, and, and there, there was a bunch to choose from. This one wasn't even on the list. And I was like, you know, well, I'd like to be able to tackle. And I told him the passage, and he said, go for it. So, 
So uh, appreciate the opportunity of being able to speak on this particular subject. And I speak on it from a perspective that this particular verse that we're going to be looking at uh, has brought loads of conviction into my life throughout my adult life, well, ever since I was 17 years old. This particular passage just really resonated with me and, and brought you know, some significant conviction. And I, I believe that this verse that we're going to look at today serves as a good example of the fact that Jesus did not periodically adapt his message to tickle people's ears. You know, unfortunately, we live in a day and age where that's happening more and more. And we shouldn't be surprised by it because it was foretold that that would be the case. You look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy this. He said, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so what Paul was saying, not that it wasn't happening in his day, because it was, and he was warning Timothy that in the years to come, it's going to be happening more and more. Um, and if it was happening back then, we certainly can look at that with the realization of, of knowing that that is happening in a big way today, that people gravitate toward people, other people who are saying things that they want to hear, and they avoid people that are saying things that they don't want to hear. And, and unfortunately, what that ends up leading to is that the, the speakers, the preachers, the pastors, you know, begin to uh, sometimes, they begin to adjust to that. And they start, they start um, adapting their message so that it is a message that is more popular. Not that preachers go quite the extent that politicians do, but it is kind of politician-like, is that based on public opinion polls, based on what you know, the majority of people in this area are saying or what they are believing, um, you know, politicians will change their views sometimes on things just to match you know, where the voting base is going to end up being. Um, and, well, the same thing can happen with preachers. And I think that's part of what, what Paul was warning Timothy about, that, that this sort of thing will happen. And it happens not only on the level of individuals, but it can happen involving entire denominations. We've seen this dynamic you know, throughout my whole uh, adult life since the 1970s that when I've been paying attention to this sort of thing. And sometimes you see an entire denomination you know, that is changing its views and its doctrines about certain subjects because, you know, of what the populace opinion is on a particular subject. And that is very unfortunate. Uh, but the thing is, when, when I look in the Bible, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't adapt his message just to tickle people's ears and to be able to keep a good-sized crowd following him. Uh, rather, instead, Jesus, he would say things at times that really thinned the crowds. For example, here's, here's uh, one of those times. If you're not familiar with this, you may want to read in John chapter 6. Verse 66 tells the effect of it all. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
But the thing is, when you go to the early part of the chapter, you see that Jesus was very popular there. He had a big following. In fact, uh, many of the people that were following him, they were kind of formulating a game plan that they were going to make Jesus their king. Even if they had to make him king by force, this was the plan they were formulating. And Jesus caught wind of it and, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with that. And then, and then between that passage in early John and this verse, is Jesus engages in some pretty strong, significant teaching. And the people don't like it. And to use that other passage in Timothy, it's because it wasn't tickling their ears. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. And so people started kind of, nah, and they turned and they walked away. And, and it's at that moment that you read that verse that following that, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, are you going to leave me too? And I know Peter, we give Peter a hard time because sometimes he opens his mouth and inserts his foot, you know, and, and, but on this occasion, man, he hit it out of the park. He, he gave a great response. Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And uh, he expressed on behalf of all the disciples their uh, allegiance to Jesus. But that wasn't the attitude the majority of the people in the crowd had. And that's why they turned and they walked away. Well, we're going to look at a verse here that I think would have a similar effect on people. Uh, because it's a bit sharp. Here's what Jesus said, and this is our main uh, verse, the question that Jesus asked. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The title of the message that you probably looked at, if you looked at your outline, uh, you know, that's only half the verse, and you really don't appreciate what the whole question is asking until you see the whole verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. Jesus had just gotten done teaching, um, you, and you can look at it in the earlier part of chapter 6 and even back into chapter 5. Um, he had several strong points that he was making to people. He was basically laying it out there that if you, this was early in his ministry, if you want to be followers of mine, this is what it entails. This is what I'm looking for. And he taught them things like love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those that mistreat you. It's like, well, boy, that's not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is someone mistreats me, I'm going to give them some of their own medicine and I'm going to mistreat them. If someone hates me, then in the very least, I'm going to dislike them. But, you know, to... to uh, do good to them, it's like, why? That's not fair to expect me to do good to people that hate me. Jesus also said in that teaching preceding this verse, he said, you treat other people the way that you would have them to treat you. You know, we call that the golden rule nowadays. You treat other people the way that you want to be treated. It's like, okay, but they're not treating me very good. So how about I fight fire with fire and I treat them, give them some of their own medicine? No, that's not the way Jesus was teaching. And so it kind of goes against our natural inclinations. Jesus said, don't get caught up 
picking at the speck in your brother's eye when you got much bigger issues going on in your own life. You need to deal with some of those issues in your own life before you start having some kind of a judgmental, critical attitude, nitpicking at other people around you. It's like, well, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> you know, I got to deal with my own issues before I can be critical with anyone else. Yeah, I mean, there was some teaching that Jesus laid out here that uh, would have come across pretty strong. And so Jesus asked this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Could that have been somewhat offensive to people? Yeah, I think so. Because he's putting it right out there for them. But there's something more that we need to see about this verse, I think, if we're going to fully appreciate what is found in that question that Jesus asked. And I got to be honest, I didn't, this, this was one of those things that I went years after I started reading the Bible and I was familiar with this verse and this verse was one of the, the more convicting verses for me personally that God used on my heart, but yet I didn't understand it, you know, at the level that I did, it was like after I moved here to Shawnee and started this church that, and I don't know what it was, I don't know if I heard someone else preaching or if I read something that kind of opened up um, this additional perspective, but whatever it was, it, it really brought additional conviction into my life. And what I'm talking about is this tendency in ancient Hebrew culture when a name is repeated back to back in succession in a statement, it serves as an expression of friendship. It serves as an expression of intimacy, of relationship, closeness, of fondness. You know, you can use any one of those words, but, but that's what's being conveyed. So it's not just that you're asking the question in this case, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? But there's an additional element here that, that from a Hebrew perspective, they would have gotten it that we in the 20th, 21st century, we don't, we don't quite understand this so much. You know, it's like, David, when I, when I run it into you, you know, whether that be at Quick Trip or whether that be out here in the parking lot, and I see you, I don't, I don't go up to you and say, David, David, what happened to our Jayhawks yesterday? You know, I, I don't say that. You know, I'll probably say something like, David, what happened to our Jayhawks yesterday? Because it's not a thing in the English language. We don't use a name in repeat fashion. It just seems odd, I guess is what I'm saying, from an English perspective. But from a Hebrew perspective, there's a message built into that. Let me give you, and I'll try to do this quickly. I want to give you multiple examples of this because I think this is important enough. I, I want you to get this. In Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord came to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. And then the angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now, the occasion, if you remember, this occasion was when David went up on Mount Moriah with his son, according to the promise, Isaac, and was following the Lord's instruction to offer him as a sacrifice. So he built an altar and put wood on it, and he, he laid his son, tied up his son on it, and took a knife, and he was being obedient to what God had said. And it was at that moment that the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And if you read the following verses, he goes on and says, 
that uh, now I know that you fear the Lord. And see, there was a very special bond, a very special relationship that the Lord had with Abraham, the father of the faith is what we refer to him as being. But there was a special relationship there. And it's being reflected just in the way the angel of the Lord refers to him. Abraham, Abraham. Or here you got another one later in Genesis. It involves Jacob. And for Jacob, you know, a grandson of Abraham's, um, God spoke to him in a vision and said, Jacob, Jacob. And, you know, Jacob said, here I am. And then God said, that you're special and I am blessing you and there's going to be an, a nation that's going to come out of your seed. And, uh, uh, but again, this happened right around the time that Jacob just found out that his son, Joseph, was alive. He thought for years Joseph was dead. You know, that whole story of what his other sons had done with Joseph and Joseph was down in Egypt. And he went from being in prison to being second in command of all of Egypt because there was a great famine in all the known world at that time. But Egypt was the only one that had storehouses big enough that still were filled with grain and food for people to eat. And so Jacob sent his sons down there to get some of that and bring it home. And they made a couple of trips. And in that whole process, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And they couldn't believe it. And they went back with carts and wagons that Joseph sent them with and said, get your dad, get your entire families and come down to Egypt and live down here close to me. And so they went back and they told Jacob that news. And Jacob's just like, whoa, he's alive. He couldn't believe it. And so he packed up and he started heading on the first night as they were traveling. He went to sleep and he had that vision. And the Lord refers to him in, you know, a, a way that conveys relationship, closeness. Here's another example that you're more familiar with even more than Jacob, and that is Moses. Moses was a shepherd, and in the distance he saw a bush that was burning, and he went over to investigate it. And when the Lord saw that, you know, God spoke th through the bush, from within the bush, said, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And then God gave him instruction, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And the rest is history as far as how God used Moses in, in the coming years. Uh, but, but God is referring to Moses with affection here, uh, in, in, uh, with fondness in, in his voice. And that's why he, he refers to him in a double way like that. Samuel. Samuel was a, a man that was used by God from the time he was like an adolescent to when he was an old man. He was faithful all those years. His mom, when um, he was born, dedicated him to the Lord. And so when he was, just got weaned, left him at the tabernacle in the care of the high priest, Eli. And so I don't know for sure how old Samuel was, maybe an adolescent, a young teenager, um, but this particular passage is talking about that he would sleep in the tabernacle and he heard his name being called Samuel, Samuel. And he got up and he went and woke Eli and said, what do you want? I heard you calling for me. Eli's like, go back to bed. That wasn't me. You know, and that happened three times. And finally, Eli begins putting two and two together and realizes the Lord is speaking to him. 
And so he gives Samuel instruction of how to respond. The next time it happens, Samuel goes back, goes to bed, and sure enough, it happens. Samuel, Samuel, then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And then God gives him a prophetic word. But again, it's, it's an expression of affection. David had several children. David, one of his children, um, you know, didn't turn out so well. His name was Absalom. Absalom wanted to usurp the throne away from his dad. And even though Absalom was fighting against David's men, David still loved Absalom. And so he gave instruction to his military men. He said, don't harm Absalom. Whatever you do, don't harm him. Well, Absalom ends up dying in the middle of everything that is, is playing out. And so the news is carried back to David, and this is the reaction that David has. He covers his face, and he says, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son, my son! It's an expression of grief, yes, but it's an expression of grief over the loss of someone he really loved, someone he really cared about. Remember Jesus on one occasion took the disciples and dropped in in Bethany, dropped in on Mary and Martha at their house. And I think it was unexpected because uh, Mary and Martha really weren't prepared for a big group of guys to come and spend the night or a couple of nights with them. But Mary, what did she do? She went and sat at the feet of Jesus and just listening to the words that he was saying while Martha was scurrying around the house, making all the preparations that would have involved food, that would have involved sleeping arrangements. She had a lot. She had a big, long list of stuff she needed to get done. But every time she walked by the area that Jesus and the disciples and her sister Mary was at, she would see Mary just sitting there. And, of course, she interpreted that as being lazy. She wasn't doing anything. And so finally, Martha interrupts Jesus and says, tell my sister to get up and get busy and help me out. Do you remember how Jesus responded to her? Here it is. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. You see, was Jesus jumping her case and chastising her? No. Jesus loved her as he loved Mary, as he loved their brother Lazarus. And so it's an expression of fondness and love. And he's just trying to make a point that Martha needs to hear in the middle of all the stress that she's experiencing. On the last full day of Jesus' life, he would be arrested later this night. And, uh, and, of course, Peter would deny knowing him and all of that was going to play out. Well, Jesus had a brief conversation with Peter. And here's what he said. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus knew full well what Peter was going to do later that day. Did that cause him to have a chip on his shoulder about Peter? No, he loved Peter. He cared for Peter, and it's being expressed in his words. Okay, so, so I mean, that's enough examples, but you get the point. They're all over the place in the Bible. Well, now we have this passage that I read earlier. But this time when I read it, you're going to read it a little differently. It's going to be a little richer with meaning. It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
You see, what Jesus is saying here is he's basically saying, why are you acting like we are so close? Why are you pretending we have this deep relationship with one another, but you're not doing what I say? It's like, whoa, that, that convicts even more. You know, when you look at it from that standpoint, what is the focal point of this verse? I mean, that to really move on with the verse, we need to answer this very basic question. What is the focal point of this question that Jesus asked? Well, clearly it is obedience. He's talking about obedience. And if for any reason we happen to miss that, we will definitely know that when we read the next three verses. Because it is what sparks him to say what he says in the next three uh, verses. He, he says what he says in verse 46, and then he frames it in a parable, a familiar parable, but maybe a parable that we didn't know was attached to this question. Here's what he went on to say. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and, and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed in its destruction. It was total. It was complete. Yeah, so it's the story of the two houses. And obviously, it's not talking about building houses. It's talking about by the decisions you make in your life, building your life, living your life. And that some people do it wisely. Other people do it unwisely. The people that do it wisely are building and, and, and making the decisions of their life on a firm foundation of what the Lord has told us. And so when the, the inevitable tests and trials and hardships of life come their way, it's not that they're going to be easy, but they're going to weather those storms because they have a solid foundation. However, there are other people that have chosen to build their life by the decisions they make on anything but this. You know, they're doing it on their own tendency or what the popular opinion is of how other people do it or they're just doing it the way their parents did it or something along those lines but 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 they're not giving any kind of preference to the lord's words in the decisions that they make in their life and unfortunately what ends up happening when the storm comes along uh, the fact that they really don't have a firm foundation it will become obvious at that time if not before that time, it'll become obvious and something very unfortunate will happen. They will have major issues in their life. But again, the point of all of this is obedience. And that's what he's illustrating here when, when he says all this on the heels of verse 46. One of the clearest passages of scripture talking about obedience perhaps, in my opinion, would be found in the second chapter of a short book called 1 John, where it says this, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now, if I just stopped on that um, half of the verse and you said, oh, that's all we're going to look at there, it, it would be a complete thought and it would be a significant thought. We know that we have come to know him, not know about him. That's not what, what John is saying. 
It's not that we know that we have come to know about him. It's that we know him. We have that relationship with him. We know that we know that we have this relationship with him. How? If we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So, wow, what a clear passage of Scripture in talking about the importance of obedience and the evidence that it presents toward being a true blue follower of Christ. You know, a genuine, authentic follower of Jesus. We can claim to know the Lord all we want until we're blue in the face. We can sing songs about him until we're out of breath. We can wear t-shirts that declare that we know him for everyone that crosses our path. We can slap bumper stickers with catchy phrases on the backside of our cars. But where the rubber meets the road as to whether or not we truly know the Lord is demonstrated in our obedience. And that's what these passages are saying, clearly communicating. You remember the Great Commission? Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the Great Commission. Let me just refresh your memory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Obey everything I have commanded you. You see, the mission that Christians have, the mission that the church has, that's God-given, Jesus gave it to us, is not only to, to go out and make followers of Christ, um, but it's to baptize them. And it's not just to baptize them. You know, that's kind of at the beginning side of all this, but then we teach them how to live a life of obedience. That's how important it is. It's embedded in the Great Commission that this, when we multiply and influence other people to become followers of Christ, this is an aspect of their followership that needs to be there, and that is obedience to the Lord. This is what loving the Lord looks like. Again, something Jesus said that last full day before he was arrested. Uh, and I'm pulling out these four verses because he just keeps saying it over and over. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And then a handful of verses later, uh, several sentences later, he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And then hardly without taking a breath, he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And then this one's even a shorter distance between the two statements. He says, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. You kind of get the impression that maybe Jesus has a point he's trying to make, Right? I mean, there's nothing like repeating yourself multiple times to drive home a point. Now, don't underestimate how important this is, biblically, to what the Scripture teaches. Jesus um, was talking 
in the tail, tail end, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And, and there's a lot of rich teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you, if you don't recall having read that, you need to read that this week. Refresh your memory. Um, but here he is kind of on, on the backside of delivering that message. And he makes this statement. And boy, if this isn't an attention-grabbing statement, I don't know what is. He says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, you know what that means, right? You know what, what Jesus is saying, that people are saying, oh, Lord, I know you, Lord. You know, I'm one of yours, Lord. You know, it's that, that claiming a relationship there. Well, Jesus says, not everyone who says this, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, and just as an additional note there, anytime in the New Testament that you read that day, that, you know, those two words put together, that day, or with the definite article, the, the day, is talking about judgment day, okay? So he says, many will say to me on judgment day, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. You talk about a strong statement that's being made. You know, I've read through the Bible multiple times, and I've run into tons and tons of passages that, that I've claimed, I've owned, I feel like, they're there for me. They're speaking to me. But I really hope that that never applies to me. What's being stated there is a very strong statement that Jesus made. I am convinced that this is one of the reasons that you will find passages in the Bible similar to what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He wrote this to a church. So understand that. Back then, they didn't have individual copies of Scripture for everybody. But when a letter was written to a church, like Corinth, the second letter uh, to the church at Corinth, um, that it was read publicly. And then there would be some copies made of it, and it would be passed on to other churches as well. Uh, but, but this is something that Paul intended to be read to the church gathering. So it would be a setting like this. Okay? What was it that he said? Here it is. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Yeah, in view of everything that we're talking about here, that it's fairly easy for people to talk the talk, but yet what the Lord is looking for in our lives is that we walk the talk. And so that's part of what Paul is doing here, is, is he's challenging people. He uses the words um, examine and test, and both of those words are present active imperative in form, which means that this, this is something you've got to do. It's not a suggestion. You've got to do this, and you've got to do this regularly. You don't just do it one time in your life. This is something that you regularly do. 
You examine yourself. You take a good hard look at yourself because there's so much at stake. Just because you throw the name of Jesus around, just because you engage in certain religious activities doesn't necessarily mean that you are good to go. And, and that's what's being implied here in why Paul wrote this to the church and wanted it read to the church. You know, it, it's not something that's foreign to our experience because we all engage in some level of self-examination or another. Um, and if we don't, then usually we regret not having done it. I mean, even something as simple as when you wake up in the morning, if you've got a meeting planned or if you're going to work or something or other where you're going to be encountering other people, I mean, if you're going out to slop the hogs, then maybe you don't do this. But if you're going to the office to work or you're going to a business meeting, then I'll, I would venture to guess you do this. You take a glance in the mirror. You do a quick self-examination. Now, you know, some of us guys probably are guilty of, uh, you know, that lasting two and a half seconds and boom, we're gone. But, uh, um, but, you know, some people, it could be considerably longer, 15, 20, 30 minutes that, you know, they're, they're checking things out and correcting whatever they don't feel is, is right. And, and I, I got to admit, there have been times in my life that I uh, have been very thankful I did that even if it was a quick glance, and then all of a sudden I realized, whoa, I still got breakfast on my face, you know, and, and so there have been times I woke up a little bit late, and I had a meeting, and I rushed and got dressed real quick, and, and you know, ran out and got in the truck, and, and was driving, and hit a stoplight or something, and then thought, ah, oh, I didn't even have time to look in the mirror, and I look in the mirror, and it's like, okay, good thing, I still got some Jimmy Dean sausage stuck between my teeth. <laughs> You know, it's a good thing I looked. And, uh, um, and now I'm discovering what with having grown some whiskers that there's a whole nother level of a challenge when you're eating. And I love soft eggs. And it's like, man, you know, David Bray told me upstairs, he said, he said, oh, egg yolk, it's the worst thing for beards. And, uh, uh, and it's like, there's some real truth to that. So, so a little self-examining can be a good thing. To do, and we know that deep down inside, and we engage in that at some level or another. Well, um, we need to engage in that on a spiritual level as well. You do not want to make the mistake of taking your spiritual life for granted and just concluding, well, yeah, back when I was 14 years old, I accepted Christ. I figured nothing's changed. I'm, I'm fine. I'm good to go. And here it is 40 years later. Man, that, that's, that's a scary attitude to be living your life with, to be taking your spiritual life for granted that much. You can't afford to do that, and I can't afford to do that. So let me give you, in, in, in the final part of the message, let me give you two passages of Scripture uh, that you can use this week. You can even start by using them today to do a self-examining of yourself spiritually. And these are just two passages that came to my mind. Um, there's, there's others that certainly can, can work in accomplishing the same thing. Uh, this first one, it's on your outline. It's Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. And it's a parable of two sons. Now, when we think about two sons, we immediately think of the prodigal son. You know, that's a parable that involves two sons. That one's a lot better known, but that's not this one. 
We also think of, not with two sons, but the Good Samaritan. That's a parable everyone knows about. But this one, this parable of two sons, is one we're not nearly as acquainted with. But in view of what we're talking about here today, whoa, it's got a major point to it. So there's a dad basically has two sons. He owns a vineyard, and he's sending each of his sons to go work in the vineyard. And so these are the instructions he gives them. Go and work today in the vineyard. Let me read it for you. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two, this is the question Jesus is asking, which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the people answered by saying the first one did. And which was the right answer. And then Jesus goes into, and you can see it for yourself in the text, he starts talking about how, you know, the people that are on the road to go to heaven, they're not the people you think they are. The religious leaders, the people wearing all the religious garments and, and all of that. Rather, it's, it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors These were the people that made early decisions in life that went a different direction than what God would have them to go, but they repented and they got back to where they needed to be. So so they're the ones that said no initially, but then later said yes, they had a change of heart, and they're the obedient ones. The ones that early on signed on and said, oh yeah, I'll be a follower, I'll be a Pharisee, I'll serve as a scribe, I'll... I'll be involved in uh, the temple um, workings as a Levite or whatever the case is. I'll be doing that stuff. But then they never, they never took it to a personal level of, of really building a relationship with the Lord. They stayed engaged in the ceremonialism of it all and not in the personal relationship of it. And, and so we need to step beyond good intentions. We need to be involved in, you know, actual obedience to the Lord. So the question that I have for myself when I'm reminded of this passage, and it's the question that would be good for you to be asking yourself, is, is there something you've been dragging your feet on that you know the Lord wants you to do? Is there something in your life that you've been procrastinating Maybe with good intentions, but you just haven't ever gotten around to it because it hasn't been convenient yet. Is there something like that in your life, in your walk with the Lord? Well, that's the thing that will demonstrate genuine love is when you step beyond good intentions and you actually are obedient. And if you don't know of anything like that, make it a part of your prayer. Ask the Lord, and he will show you. The Spirit will help you to see what it might be in your life that uh, uh, is the next step of your obedience. This other passage is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and this is telling a story. And, boy, it's, it's right to the point of everything that we're talking about today. It's involving the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And... Um, God gives Saul some very specific instructions, and they're primarily found in verses 2 and 3. 
says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Now that includes all the livestock and everything as well. This was God's instruction. The Amalekites, when the Israelites were released out of um, bondage in Egypt and they were heading north, the Amalekites did not provide any assistance at all. In fact, they did just the opposite. And so now there's judgment day on the Amalekites and God is going to use Saul and uh, his army to, to bring to pass this judgment. Well, okay, so that's the instruction, but what is it that Saul actually does? You go a few verses later. And you read, Saul took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So basically what Saul is doing is he's modifying what God said. God said, I want you to do this and that. And Saul's like, um, okay, but let's change this and that to that and that, you know. And, you know, he adapted it um, to, more to his liking. What was God's response to that? The very next two verses. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And so now it's the next day, and Samuel is going to Saul, and he's having a hard time finding him, and someone tells him, oh, Saul went to such and such town. He's building a monument to himself, you know, so that everyone remembers the victory over the Amalekites. And, uh, and so anyway, Samuel, you know, I mean, there, there's an attitude thing there, pride going on. But Samuel goes ahead and looks for Saul and eventually finds him. And Saul is the one who speaks up first. And here's what he said. He says to Samuel, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. You know, probably sticking out his chest a little bit when he said that, you know. And Samuel is having a hard time listening to what Saul is saying because You know, the thing that we don't appreciate is that there are sound effects going on. There are things happening around him, and it involves livestock. Look at the very next verse. This is classic. Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? You see, Samuel's basically implying here, there's the evidence that you have not obeyed. You have disobeyed. I hear it all over the place. Now, Saul, you know, he's going to try to justify himself. And in his response, he says, the soldiers, oh, he had nothing like passing the buck, right? The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So he's casting the blame on the other soldiers but he's still trying to claim credit for the good uh, that they actually did uh, accomplish. Samuel, he's heard enough. He says, stop. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes 
of the Lord. See, Samuel's, he, he's getting right to the core of the issue of it all. Um, and Sam, Samuel, or Saul, he wasn't in the right. He had adapted God's message to suit himself. And so the next words that come out of Samuel's mouth, if you have not heard these before, you need to hear this. This is, and this is the context of the story that these words are found in, and especially verse 22. I mean, that's the sort of thing that some, some people have cross-stitched into a wall hanging and stuff. I mean, it's, it's a significant expression that is being made, and this is the context that is found in. Samuel says this, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, the thing you got to remember is back in that day, you know, one of the primary ways that they would engage in worship is they would go to the tabernacle and they would have animal sacrifices. Sometimes it was corporate community sacrifices that were offered. Other times it was individual families or even individuals themselves that would offer up some kind of a sacrifice. And, and so it was central to the, the method and approach of worship that happened back in that era. Now, we don't live in that area. Uh, the, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice once for all time. So fortunately, we don't have to sacrifice, you know, animals and all. The sacrifices we give are the sacrifices of praise and, and stuff like this, which the Bible actually uses that phrase in Hebrews. Um, but, but the thing, remembering that this was a major part of the way they approached worship there. And here Samuel is saying, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Well, we know that the Lord delights in those because it was all part of the Old Testament covenant that this is what they were be engaging in. But, but Samuel's not done. He says, as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And he's like, no. Obeying the Lord is far more important. That's the point that he's trying to make here. And so as I take that and I apply that to myself, and I help you to apply it to you, yourself, it's like along the level, does, does the Lord want you to come to church regularly? Yeah, I can tell you a book, chapter, and verse that says that in the New Testament. Does the Lord want you engaging in praise and worship Songs like what we just did a little bit ago? Absolutely. You know, that's a good thing. It's a biblical thing that we be doing. Does the Lord want us to pray, whether we bow our head or we open our eyes and look upward? Does he want us to regularly pray? Yes, he does. Does he, does he delight in seeing us start our day with a morning devotion time? You know, whether it's with a cup of coffee or a glass of orange juice, you bet. That's all stuff that he likes. But what does he want most from us? Even more than all of that, he wants your obedience. He wants my obedience. Because that is the clear demonstration of our love and our devotion to him. That is the evidence. And if it's not there, then that is unfortunate evidence. To the contrary, that we have a relationship with the Lord.
Yeah, so it's very convicting what, what I see here. Paul thought he could, or I'm not Paul, Saul, Saul thought he could pick and choose just what he wanted to obey. Call that partial obedience if you want to, but God calls it disobedience. God's word is not a buffet where we pick and choose what we want. Now, just for the record, I'm all for buffets. I like buffets. I, man, there was years that if, if, and I very seldom heard this from Colette, but if, you know, the family was out and about running some errands on a Saturday and Colette would say, what, you guys want to go to Golden Corral? That was music to my ears. It's like, yes. And when I first moved here, there was a place on Shawnee Mission Parkway, like before you get to uh, Long John Silver's on the north side of the road called Ponderosa. Any of you remember Ponderosa? Man, that was my favorite eating place when I moved here because they had the best buffet because they had the best fried chicken of any place. And I'd go in there and I'd walk right past the salad bar and the losers that were standing there. And I, I, would, I would walk past the desserts and the green beans and all. And I would get to the fried chicken and I'd have a plate. And then I'd go back for seconds and get more. And then I'd have dessert with a couple of drumsticks, you know, and, and, uh, and my boys loved it too. I, you know, told, told the boys that after they ate a few basic things, the first round that they could get whatever they wanted. And Josh, um, he, uh, he went up and I still remember this time because it became very eventful eventually, but, um, he went up and got a big bowl and filled it full of white gravy. No potatoes or anything, just white gravy. That was his favorite thing. So he's going to eat white gravy. And of course, you know, he was kind of hyper and, and that bowl of white gravy ended up all over in his lap and everything. It, it was pretty comical. But uh, um, yeah, buffets, I mean, we might kind of have an issue with some of that, how far you carry it, because we're going to find... And maybe a sermon on another day, study gluttony in the Bible. So, you know, there may be something like, okay, you got to be careful how far you carry some of that. But, but buffets in and of themselves aren't bad. But this is not a buffet. This is not something that we approach and we start picking and choosing. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. But nah, 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 nah. No, I'm skipping that page. That one too. Oh, this, I'm in favor of doing that is not the way to approach the Word of God. It's not a buffet. So we're going to have our time of communion now. And I want to give you two passages of Scripture. One of them you're well familiar with because we've talked about it in multiple moments of the message. Luke 6, 46, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And this other one I never even referred to, but yet it's such a straightforward verse I had to put it on there do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says if you just read the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible and treat that as an end in itself if you just come to church and you hear a message that's based on the word of God and that's an end in itself then you're kidding yourself you're lying to yourself because he doesn't want us just talking the talk. He wants us walking the talk. 
There's so many things that we can do with the Word of God. We can teach it, we can preach it, we can post it on Facebook, we can print it on t-shirts and wear it, we can we can discuss it in small group settings. We can debate over it. We can sing about it. We can even tattoo it on our arm if we want. There's so many things that we can do with the Word of God. But if we're not careful, we can end up doing everything with it except for the one thing that is needed the most. And that is plugging it into our lives. Living it. That is the ultimate expression of love and devotion to the Lord. It's not singing a song. And I'm not taking anything away from singing a song. It's not saying a prayer. It's being obedient to the Lord. Serving Him with a life of obedience. So examine your heart today. Like that 2 Corinthians 13 passage. Examine your heart during this time of communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the clarity of your word and how we can take one verse and then before we knew, know it, we're seeing it all over the place throughout Old Testament and New Testament. That it obviously is a matter of importance in your eyes. And therefore it needs to be a matter of importance in our eyes, in our lives. Lord, might you be honored, might you be exalted, might you be glorified by seeing us living obedient lives. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.